0: Hello, beautiful people. I'm Heat, host of Ordinary Chaos, where we explore the interesting side of ordinary. We often see famous people as interesting and not famous people as not interesting. But the truth is, we're all interesting if you ask the right questions. Today's guest is an artist, a not famous artist, talking about her process and her work. I thought she was fascinating and was sad the conversation ended so quickly. Let's get to it. here today on our artist thread with Dale Slongwhite. She is a writer and a presenter of creative writing workshops and retreats. And I'm super excited to have you here talking about writing. Thank you so much.
1: I'm excited to be here.
0: Tell us how you got started in writing.
1: Oh, dear. You're going to bring me all the way back to first grade
0: now? All the way back. Think-
1: i'll tell you when the teacher put that fat red pencil in my hand and stuck that piece of paper in front of me with those blue lines and the polka dotted lines in the middle i knew at that moment i wanted to be a writer and my father actually worked at bostage staple company and he brought home a book stapler well that was my favorite thing as a child And so I would put colored paper over it, red construction paper, and then white paper in between and staple these books and wrote a few of them. Sally and her monkey, I recall. (laughs) (laughs) Then in seventh grade, I'm going to have to reveal my age at this point, but I was in seventh grade when the Beatles hit and I was a Beatles fan. And so I wrote a book about the Beatles when I was in seventh grade. Of course, I was the star of the whole thing in which me and my friend Pam snuck into the Beatles room in some hotel in New York City. And so that book was 150 pages, handwritten or typed, I forget. But I had just transferred to public school from a a small Christian school. And, you know, this school was huge. It had like 1,300 kids. In grades seven and eight, wow! And we, it's coming from you know not even changing classes into this environment. I've often looked back on writing that book and how I was able to merge into all of these unknown students because my book was a sensation. And I, my Pam was my manager. People would come to her and sign up to read the thing, and we had two of them circulating, and you know it was our life in seventh grade. <laughs> Uh, And we were convinced the Beatles would want to read it, and all we had to do was write a letter to Murray the K, the disc jockey on 1010 Winds New York, which is what we listened to, if we could just get this. So we sat in her room one day, and I said, okay, I've got it, dear Murray. Oh, I don't know what else to say. She goes, I've got it, dear Murray. Oh, boy. Needless to say, we never finished the letter, hence I never met the Beatles. In the eighth grade, I wrote another book about the same length in which every chapter was the title of a popular song at that point in time. So that was a, That was really a, a fun thing. And then there was this blank period, we'll call it <laughs> in, in high school things and in, in college things got a little busy. Let's put it that way. And, and then I married young. I married at 20 and it took me. 25 years to finish my bachelor degree, actually. I put my husband through school and then took a class here, a class there. How this ties into writing is when I got to the end of that and and I graduated with a bachelor in communications, I was doing a low residency program. And so I was working full time. I was driving 40 miles to work. I had two teenagers. That would have been enough in and of itself. And I was going to school. So that was also a hectic time, but this gave me the opportunity to interview writers. In my low residency program, I had to write these units of what I would do to earn 16 hours of college credit. As other people were like writing research papers, I said, no, when are you going to call up a writer and say, can I interview you, a well-known one? If you're a student, it doesn't really, they don't care how old you are. You know, I'm a student, I'm doing this research. So I interviewed four New England writers. I interviewed Elizabeth Searle. She had just won the Iowa Short Fiction Award. I interviewed Donald Hall. He was the Poet Laureate of New Hampshire, then became the Poet Laureate of the United States. I interviewed Susan Dodd, which, oh, I loved that interview, sitting in a little basement apartment, side by side on this two-seater couch, dr- sipping tea she'd made, talking about her book, *Mamma* which was the fictionalized life story of Jesse James' mother. And I listened to that in my recording all the way home, just like, wow, what an experience. And then, oh, there, there was a fourth one. I should have written down the name. Oh, Mary McGarry Morris. And her book had just been made into a movie by Steven Spielberg. So I interviewed them because I wanted to learn how to write better. Shortly after that time, I decided that I wanted to write a a novel. That had always been my dream, to write a novel. And I spent a year writing it. I thought it was good. I spent a year circulating it around. I thought it was good. It just kept getting, no way, no way, no way. You know, just this is not good. This does blah, 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 all the bad stuff. And I was crushed, needless to say. I felt if I gave everything I had... And it wasn't good enough. There was something about writing. I did not know when I was going to figure that out. So I went to the library pre-Google days, you know? Yes. Currently, I either ask Google or I ask my daughter. They seem to have the same level of knowledge. (laughs) But back then, I had to go to the library. And I asked the librarian, do you have a list of colleges in the area? And they gave me a list. I went home. I called everyone and said, do you have any writing courses this summer? Do you have any writing courses? Well, lo and behold, the University of Lowell, which is now the University of Massachusetts in Lowell, was about 20 to 30 minutes from my house at best. And they did this thing that I don't even know if they do it now, but I hope so. It was fantastic. It was like a symposium. And they didn't do it during the school year. They met in the same area, you know, same building, same floor on campus, only during the summer. And I think there were two sessions. And so they had writing the essay, writing novels, uh, writing memoir. And so I took one of those courses. And so now this is the first writing course of my life because I do not count freshman composition. That was 7.10 (laughs) in the morning and was half a mile from the dorm and I was in New England. You know, I mean, you don't want to be walking at 6.45 in the snow. So I don't count that. (laughs) <laughs> As count. so this would be my first writing class of my life and so i hand in my first essay and i was so excited I, I was just really onto it and i couldn't remember exactly what he'd give given for the second assignment and i he had said call us up if you don't know if you need any have any questions so i called him up he goes oh dale i was just about to call you i said really what was it about? And he says, I don't think you should take this class. Well, you talk about being This is the first writing class of my life. This is what I wanted to do when I was in the first grade. You know, I'm not going to tell you how old I was then, but you know, uh, definitely in my forties, this was the highlight. I go, why not? He said, well, the essay you turned in is so far above what everybody else turned in. There's nothing I can teach you. I said, you, you'll figure it out. You are going to figure (laughs) it out because I love this class and I'm not dropping it. And he said, okay, you can stay in if you talk a lot. Well, that wasn't a hard thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) And so it got to the point where the essays I wrote in that class wound up being published, uh, some in the newspaper, uh, when our newspaper editor took a break for a couple of weeks and two of my essays got published. I published a couple of them in a book. But it got to the point that that professor, when we turned in our essays, He would read the opening lines to the class and it got to the point, you know, you know people's writing styles, you know who did this. And so when he would read mine, the class would turn and look at me and laugh because it was just so, well, here's one I've got it posted on my wall, the one that was in a newspaper. My Aunt Lucy eloped to Las Vegas when she was 65. The next year she learned to ride a bicycle. So I mean... (laughs) I guess I have a unique style, <laughs> but anyways, it, it it was a fantastic class and I just absolutely loved it. After that, what happened was, well, I'm going to insert something here that doesn't sound like it connects, but in a couple of sections here, a couple of paragraphs, it will connect. Great. I currently live in Florida. But I'm still a New Englander at heart. You know, I am not leaving that behind. And we were living in northeastern Massachusetts, and it was a hot August day. Oh, we were having a heat wave. We could not cool off. I mean, who has air conditioning in Massachusetts? We didn't. And so I said to my husband, you know, I remember seeing a sign somewhere in southern Maine, and it said something about a ferry ride. And I said, I think if we go there, we can cool off. So he goes, okay. So we investigate and we go off. There it is, this ferry. So now I'm in the front of it looking like it's, you know, the Titanic or something, hanging off (laughs) just to try to cool off. And it goes up the Piscataqua River, which divides Maine from New Hampshire. We got on in, in New Hampshire, but if we looked to our left... I mean, as close as New Hampshire was, we were seeing Maine. And then it goes out into the, what is it called? It's a bay. I forgot what the bay is, but I always thought it was just the ocean. But anyways, Bay of Maine even maybe. And so we're out there. We get nine miles, what I'm saying, out to sea. And all of a sudden, this ferry starts slowing down. I'm going, wonder what's going on? Wonder what's going on? And we had come to an island. And I had no clue there was an island out there. And there was some like a big hotel on it. And people started getting in line to get out. And so I got in line. And the guy, the it wasn't the pilot, but whatever he was, says, Let me see your ticket. So I hand over my ticket and he says, Well, you can't get off. You don't have the right ticket. Hmm. I didn't know what it was, but this was an island in the ocean. I want it off. <laughs> so I say to David, next year we're buying the right tickets and we're getting off at this place. So the next summer. We get on the boat, and I have my right ticket. <laughs> I'm getting off this time. Don't <laughs> <you> stop me. <laughs> and so I'm all excited. And I get off the boat, and we go down this cement dock, I guess you would call it, pier, they call it. And up this grassy hill, there's a number of buildings around, but it's a small island. And we walk up, oh, probably 20 steps, big, wide veranda, rocking chairs. And I go inside, and there's a little gift shop. There's a little bookstore. There's a little snack bar and they have lime rickies. Well, I never had a lime ricky, but it sounded good enough on a hot day. So I bought one and sat on the rocking chair outside sipping on that ricky. And I thought, man, I wonder if anybody ever gets to sleep out here. So I go back inside and I, I go to the desk where it's manned by teenagers, which I was soon to learn they're called pelicans. And I say, so does anybody ever get to sleep out here? And they said, um yes actually this is a retreat center boink a retreat center and uh she says we are having this is actually this is the funny part she goes this is actually owned by the unitarians and we're having a woman's retreat in a couple of weeks and i go back and i sit in my rocking chair and i think man i could pose as a unitarian if that you get to sleep (laughs) All I had to do was be quiet so that nobody asked me any questions. <laughs> so I go home and I sign up. And so on this Friday, I I'm there I am with my little suitcase on the dock, ready to sleep on an island. And, you know, it's all these women are greeting each other. You know, there's got to be 60 women there. And they see each other like once a year. And they're, oh, hi, hi, how was your year? And I'm, nobody's talking to me. And I'm trying to be quiet. And so we get out there and they had said, we have a chapel service on saturday night if you want to contribute anything you know bring something along so i throw one of my essays gathering silver into my suitcase so on friday night they say um anybody who wants to participate go to the picnic tables so i show up and about five other ladies shops show up and this one woman says okay i can organize it well No offense, because I don't even know her name, and it's been all these years, but she couldn't have organized a grocery shopping list, you know. I mean, it was really rough. Well, I have two children, one of whom you know, and the other one has ADHD. So I found out later that this woman had ADHD, she told me. and But I never understood what happened next until she did tell me this. So we played our roles. She said she'd do it. I somehow, I don't know how it happened, The paper became in front of me and the pen was in my hand. And I suddenly I was in charge. (laughs) So, So the first thing I did was ask everybody, what do you do? What do you do? What do you have? Wrote that down, organized it into a logical list. I found out that Unitarians light a chalice at the beginning. One of them had a chalice. I found out that in this branch of Unitarians, they don't pray. They do something like poems. And so fine, somebody had that. But nobody had like a main thing. Okay, I guess I'll do that. So much for being quiet at the Unitarian retreat where I'm an imposter. So anyways, it went over really, really good. And on the way back on the boat, they were all saying, can you come back next year and organize chapel? And I say, like, oh, boy, I'm going to get wound out here. Well, I did not go back the next year. So now I'm going to segue into the next thing that happened. And it all ties together. I was laid off from my job and had never been on unemployment, did not know even how it had just happened. And I got a call from my friend, April, who was living in Canada. Now, remember, we were living in Massachusetts and she was a very close friend. And she says, Dale, I'm coming to Massachusetts next week. I'll be in Amherst. Well, that was two hours away. But now I was laid off. So what did it matter that it was two hours away? We made arrangements to have dinner. So I drove all the way out to Amherst and found out that she was here in the country, in the state, in Amherst, taking a course with Amherst writers and artists, which is you get certification to present creative writing workshops. And so I kept trying to get her back on that subject. But my daughter was in school at Amherst, so she joined us for dinner. And those two really hit it off, my friend and my daughter, Laurel. And whenever there was a pause in the conversation, I'd try to get back to what was this all about? How do you find out about it? And so I, on the way home, I, I was thinking and thinking. And I decided they were giving me severance for my job and also unemployment. But I didn't know if they came at the same time or you finished up with severance and then you got unemployment. And I decided that if I was going to get both at the same time, I was throwing the wad into taking this Amherst writers and artists. I was not doing the safe thing. It was only going to be my severance. It wasn't going to be the unemployment, the cost of it. So I did it. And I was trained over a week's time. I think it was five days to present creative writing workshops now the what that was, the training was you were supposed to have one class a week for I think it was 10 weeks, and the class would be two and a half hours. The first thing I did was rent an entire bed and breakfast for a weekend. You know, thinking, okay, if he gets to it for I rented this bed and breakfast. I couldn't believe it. This woman, who was the Inn on Cove Hill in Rockport, Massachusetts. A beautiful, beautiful spot right overlooking the ocean. I don't know if you've ever heard of Motif Number no. 1, which is a, a fishing shack with all of these lobster markers all on the side of this. It's a very famous picture, but we could see that from the Inn on Cove Hill. And so Betsy, that was her name. Betsy was the, um, so this must have been like 2005, I think. And so she said, if I did not rent every room, I would have to pay for any that was empty. Well, a miracle happens. There's one room left and I haven't rented it about 8 PM on Friday night in walk. These people, nothing else is available in town in the summer in Rockport, you know, which closes down in the wintertime. So that was just a real blessing. So that was the beginning. I, that was the beginning of that day, but the, <laughs> I was so nervous. I didn't even want to get out of the car that day. It was like, I'm a fraud, I'm a fraud, I'm a fraud. But I mean, I had this thing organized. I knew what we were going to do every single minute of Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, or half day Sunday, I forget. But then I remembered Star Island, and I said, wait a minute, those Unitarians, did they let anybody else in? <laughs> I i have to admit I'm not one. But anyways, I called up the main office. And sure enough, June, July, and August, they have all of these Unitarian retreats. And in September, two weeks, you can lead a group if it's educational or spiritual. When I said writing, they said that goes. So I signed up for a week, Monday through Friday. <laughs> now for 16 years, I've been going to Star Island, even if I'm here in Florida. And it's just a beautiful place, beautiful place. Last year, for the first time, my two sisters came with their husbands. You know, I've talked about it all these years. It was the best weather we've ever had in 16 years. My sister took painting from a woman who teaches that. My other sister took quilting. She did this beautiful quilt for her yet-to-be-born grandchild. You know, and I taught writing. And the two men did Rest and relaxation, which meant they did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> they were just so excited. But one thing I forgot to say about that. Oh, yes. No, two things. I started going there, and I think it was 2005. And about I don't know, maybe it was like 2010, I get an email from a friend. And she says, Dale, we took that boat trip around Star Island. You know, we took a trip that didn't get stop at the island to get off. The boat captain, as he's driving around the island, says they have all kinds of retreats. They even have a writing retreat. So now I'm part of the tour. <laughs> this summer, we pull up to the dock and there is the, I don't know, he's the number one guy, <laughs> year-round employee. And he—and he's standing on the dock and he looks up and he goes, hey, hi, Dale, and waves. Well, my sister was like, he knows you? anyways right now i am quickly getting ready for my next star island it's always starts on labor day so sometimes it's early in september sometimes it's a little later how and so how many years has that been going
0: on now i think it's 16 i think i love that you just jumped in you're like okay i know how to do this now i'm just gonna go do it
1: You know, I've done that in a couple of things, actually. Yeah, that's funny you point that out. I hadn't really even thought about it, that being the way that I operate. But, yeah, I've written five or six books. Well, I've written five, and I'm in the process of two others. One of them is called Fed Up, The High Cost of Cheap Food. If you think you're going to get money, I'm going to tell you, actually, how you earn a living by being a writer. You marry somebody who's employed. (laughs) Now, fed up, my daughter Karen, whom you know, was in law school, and whenever my children ask me to do something, my go-to answer is yes, and then I'll figure it out, or if I have to say no, but I always, that's my first answer. Relationship is the most important thing to me in life. So anyways, she was organizing, she was taking environmental law, and she was organizing an environmental justice conference. I never heard of the term environmental justice. I thought it meant recycling because she was big into recycling. She started a recycling program in her high school back when before it was the popular thing. Uh, We started one at home, you know, then I couldn't use aerosol, hairspray. You know, it was a big thing in high school. So I did say yes to that environmental justice conference, going in totally blind, not knowing anything. And I'm sitting there. And the lawyers are talking. And I'm like, man, will somebody just speak English, please? You know, I had no (laughs) clue, absolutely no clue what they were talking about. And all of a sudden, this African-American woman, Linda, they, they introduced her and they helped her up onto the stage. And she sat down and she began talking just in a conversational tone, normal language, you know, nothing highfalutin. And she began talking about how when she was growing up and it turned out she's one year younger than me, almost exactly. And here I thought she was so much older and handicapped, which she was, but she grew up in this area of Florida where I live. And there were a lot of farms and orange groves. And she began talking about what it was like to work in the, in the fields. I was absolutely shocked. I thought in this generation, harvesting the fields would be automated. But no, here we are. I mean, today it's like 95 degrees. I hardly go out in the summertime. You know, I, I couldn't tell you if it's sunshine or not. I, I keep those shades down. I consider a summer in Florida like a snow blizzard in New England. You know, you just close the windows and pretend it's not happening. But here she was in the fields in heat, like you couldn't believe, lightning, that would come down and split their raincoats, rats in the field, snakes in the field, no bathrooms in the field, and planes would go overhead with DDT and drop it on the people. I am sitting there in this environmental justice thing saying, this can't, this can't be happening, but this woman is speaking of firsthand hand knowledge. You, you're going to drop DDT on people? She began talking about, she lives in a section of town that is Unfortunately, segregated. And it's mainly the people who worked on the farms. There was a whole group of these individuals, African Americans, everyone, who had worked on the fields. And they were brought there that day to find out if anything could be done about what had happened to them. Many of them were sick. Many of them had already died. And the person who brought them, her name was Jeannie. And Jeannie is the pesticide. No, I think it's called Pesticide Coordinator of the Florida Farmworker Association. And I went up to Jeannie and I said, has anybody ever written a book th- about this? Well, I don't remember exactly what she did say, but she told me later on her thought was, "This lady wants to write a book and I want to win the lottery. You know, our chances are about the same. Well, I went back the next year to that same environmental justice conference only because I had to write that book. It was on my heart that whole year. This is not right. Somebody's got to do something. And I think that when you live in a place, it's almost like a lobster being boiled in the pot. Your senses just are not there. As someone who moves into an area that is very different from the area they've been in, and then you see where you came from and what you... And the prejudices. That I couldn't believe and, and this this DDT and other things. So the second year, Jeannie said to me, if you're gonna take on this project, you have to see it all the way through to the end. Do you realize how many times that white people have promised this community something and they didn't get it? I said, Yes, I'll do it. I I, I want to do it. Now I had ne- I'd done some interviewing, obviously, when I told you about that with the school, but I had never done a book such as this. I had written a collection of essays with my sister that was published by a small Christian publisher, but I had never done anything of this magnitude. And so Jeannie, in the beginning, she would come with me to the people's houses, you know, the ramshackle shacks, tarps on roofs because the roofs were leaking and you couldn't, didn't have the money to pay for them. Money would come in from grants to go to them and then it would go to another affluent part of the city uh, they didn't have light uh, street lights but you know so anyways I interviewed 11 African-Americans who had worked on these muck farms and then became ill it, it, that was really difficult because I had never written a book proposal I actually had to ask Karen when I would read the instructions what is this even talking about what do they even want me to do here I, I wrote this whole book And I only sent it out, didn't even go through a literary agent, which I thought I'd have to, but I don't know why I started with publishing companies. But the University Press of Florida picked that book up. And no, I did not get money out of it. I mean, yeah, I did, but nothing to write home about. I'm not J.K. Rowling by any means. (laughs) But it did open up a lot of opportunity for me. Linda, the one that I originally saw at the Environmental Justice Conference, Linda and me and a woman named Geraldine and a woman named Betty. I went out with Linda and Geraldine and Betty. We would go speak in in colleges, in churches, in schools. Uh, We've been to the University of Florida. We've been to Seminole State College almost every semester. So, yeah, I jumped into that one as you pointed out to me, that I never knew I did. (laughs) But the one I knew I jumped into, if I may segue, (laughs) was about two or three years ago, and I'm still in the middle of this project. My niece had an extra ticket to go to a gala in Tampa. Well, Tampa is about two hours away from me, but I thought, you know, I'll go. Well, lucky I did have one gown in my closet from a previous engagement. Struck that in the car, and off I go two hours to Tampa. I didn't even know what it was going to, you know, no, yet again, <laughs> just walking by. <laughs> and I could not believe that my gown was like, yeah, it was a gown and it was nice. But whoa, some of these ladies with these trains and everything else. Anyways, when I found out that this gala was a fundraiser for an organization called Stay in Step. Stay in Step was started maybe six, maybe seven or eight years ago by... Romy and Gabby Camargo. Romy was a Green Beret or Special Forces Ops, as I learned is the same thing. He was in Afghanistan fighting the Taliban, and in 2008, he was shot in the neck and became a quadriplegic. He would have died right there on the battlefield if the, if the medic hadn't jumped from one Humvee into the back of his, got a razor blade from the kit, sliced his neck and stuck in a breathing tube because when you become a quadriplegic, you know, I've learned so much about this. It's not just that you can't move your arms and legs. There's other parts of your body that need it too. And for instance, the diaphragm, the diaphragm is will not work. And that's with the diaphragm pumping, then that's what makes you breathe. So if that hadn't happened, he would have died instantly. But since then, it's just a miraculous story. They are the happiest people. They're the most positive couple. So I've been interviewing them and writing their story for uh, a couple of years. You can't go too fast because they, he gets tired. But anyway, so that's the what I'm and, and I'm also I've got to I've got to decide on which of my next novels. Oh, I didn't even talk about that, did I? After finishing Fed Up, that was such an intense book, and it was so discouraging. To realize that not, okay, fine, they have bathrooms in the fields now, whoop de doops But there's still this prejudice against farm workers. If we didn't have them, we wouldn't eat. Americans are not going to be out in the field, 90-degree weather, getting stung by bees, you know, bending over. When I give presentations, I'll have people stand up and I'll say, I'm going to read two paragraphs and you pretend you're harvesting fields. Two paragraphs. I don't even get into the second one. And they're all moaning. We can't do this. You, you're talking to people that provided you your lunch today. Did this day in, day out, day in, day out. Didn't matter if it was hot. It didn't matter if it was raining. And then you complain. Well, anyways, I had to do something lighthearted after that. Oh, man. Because I it just, it weighed heavy on me. So I came up with this premise and I... um. A small publisher published this one last year, and it's called Grady Gilbert Google's God. And it's about a young boy who's nineteen who runs out of gas. He he runs out of gas. He's from Orlando. He runs out of gas in Tennessee on a rural road, doesn't have an, enough money to even get gas if he wasn't if he could find a gas station. And he walks into a church to ask for help. Well, this is a Wednesday night, and they are awaiting their new pastor who's coming in from the seminary. They heard from him about half an hour ago. They figure he, they don't even ask. They just figured that he is the guy. But the real pastor had been in an auto accident, you know, just injured, but not, you know, killed or anything. And so Grady decides, hmm, I I I would have a place to stay, I would have a salary. How hard could could mastering be? You don't have to punch a time clock. You know, you don't even have a boss. You know, I'm the big one. So as a 19-year-old kid, he does that and he figures everything out how to do by googling. You know, how do you <laughs> work? well, you know. So anyways, that was a fun. That was that 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 was fun, but now as far as you in the beginning introduced me as a presenter of creative writing workshops and retreats, the new thing that I am doing because of COVID, well, once a month now, I'm going to offer a full day workshop, or probably like three quarters of, of a day, in which I do the exact same things I do on Star Island for the full week. Did you do your retreats during COVID? I assume not. Did you do them online? I wish I had started a little earlier with the online ones. I couldn't figure out in my mind how to do it because It seemed to me that it would seem impersonal. I couldn't get my mind around how to keep the personal touch. So I waited long. And I do have a... That was the other thing I was going to say. I have a Tuesday morning workshop, uh, which we've been doing for maybe two years since COVID. It's a very small group, which we hope will expand. Uh, But we meet on Tuesday morning, 10 to 12. And the only thing we do in those two hours... So I'll give a writing prompt. A prompt is not an assignment. Let's just say, I said, now we're going to talk about water. Well, before they start writing, I said, well, let's talk a minute here. What can you think of? Okay, let's pretend you're in the workshop. Okay. So we're going to talk about, we're going to write about water. So tell me some topics that you could cover if you're going to write about water.
0: I could write about swimming. I could write about being hydrated. I could write about seafood. I could write
1: about puddles. I could write about thunderstorms. Puddles. That was a really good one. Notice I never said that before. So I say, okay, whatever comes to mind, write about it. Anything that has to do with water. So what these are like, they're not story starters. They're memory generators is what they are. And uh, so we do that on Tuesday morning. We write to three prompts in two hours. I read out loud and the rest will respond after the person reads with just what what struck them, what they thought was good. What I have discovered in all of these years of, I I don't teach writing, I facilitate writing. And there is a difference. Teaching assumes the person doesn't know it. Facilitating the person is better than they think, really. A lot of the people that I meet have been very discouraged by teachers, by red marks on papers. They always say, oh, I'm not as good as everybody else. I'm not as good as everybody else. Well, by the time they Finish on Star Island, and I'll get people who don't even want to talk. They are just saying Dale's taught us that the whole world is a (laughs) problem. You know, and what it is is self confidence. That's what people need. And so, I my philosophy is that people. Oh, I've got to tell you another story. Is that people do much better when you tell them what they're doing right rather than pointing out what they're doing wrong? Yeah, this is another story. When this must have... poo, how long could it be? These boys have graduated from college. I'm not even sure they were in high school. Anyways, so we're talking maybe eight years, nine years ago. My sister ran into a couple that were trying or had homeschooled their two boys from first grade up, or I think, or maybe fourth grade up anyways, but they were about to quit homeschooling because they couldn't do the writing part. And so this person just confesses this to my sister who says, wait a minute. I think I know somebody who could help. She calls me up. How would you like to teach two homeschool boys? Come to find out they lived about a mile and a half from my house. And I only have two daughters. What I know about boys? But I said, yes, I'll do it. In they come. They're in the eighth or ninth grade. They're brothers. You know, one was in the eighth and one was in the ninth, I think, or seventh and eighth. They're taller than me. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. So I start with this. But, you know, with the philosophy, you only point out what is good. Particularly in the beginning, they're like, it's like newborn writing, newborn babies. You're not going to critique a newborn baby. So I would give a writing prompt and they would write and then they'd read it. Well, you know, it was about five lines at the most, if we were lucky. So we couldn't go over it in the beginning. I, I didn't even want to see it because I had to build up their confidence by when they read their work. Oh, this is good. I'll tell you what I really like about it. You use this adjective, whatever it was. You know, I could really picture that, whatever. And then at the end of a three or four sessions I said okay now I want you to go home and type up what you just wrote so they come back and they hand me the paper like, oh man what am I going to say good about this what am I going to say <laughs> and so I say you know when you read this to me it I really was into it It was so good. I want any reader who looks at this to have the same feeling I did in the beginning. So I noticed that you don't have any periods in this, that everything is one long run on sentence. Well, I think it would be good if we put some periods in here. So I'm going to read when you think it's the end of a sentence, you tell me and I'll put a period in. So they got it. They did that. Okay. I think we need some paragraphs in here. Do you understand how to do paragraphs, by the way? Yeah, I think so. Okay, well, I'm going to read this. And you tell me when you think a paragraph should come. And I would pause. Then it got into guns. Oh, man. And I knew their parents weren't going to like that. They kept writing about guns. No matter what you said, write about a stick. Guns, (laughs) no matter what I would say, they would write about guns. And so finally, I thought of something. I wish I remember what it was, that there's no way they could get guns guns out of it. Well, of course... Guns got to be a code word somewhere in their little essay there. (laughs) But by the end, they would beg me to write more. Rather than 10 minutes, it would go to 20 minutes. It would go to half an hour. It would go, wait a minute, I'm just getting to the good part. And so I would say to them, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you from this point on. I'm going to sit on your shoulder. (laughs) Your whole life, I'm going to be on your shoulder. And when you're going to write something, I'm going to be whispering in your ear and you're going to say, OK, I know what Dale will do about this. I do. And so years go by. I happen to be on the campus of the college where they went to and I saw somebody I knew, I think. It, but but I asked somebody, do you know? And I said the name to go. He goes, oh, yeah, he that kid is such a good writer. And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Other thing I said to them was, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You know, remember they were in the eighth grade and freshman. I said you're going to go to college, and the kid across the hall is going to come over there weeping and wailing, gnashing of teeth, and saying, "I have this writing assignment. I don't know what to do." And you're going to say, "Oh, no problem. I can tell you what to do." And so you're going to sit down and you're going to teach this kid everything I taught you. But that, that's the way I run my workshops, and that's if I'm with kids, I'm with you know whoever I'm with. In it, that's the way I. Dare I say, teach writing, facilitate it?
0: That's fantastic. What a great story. <laughs> so, if you're in doing the same types of facilitating repeatedly over time, how do you keep it fresh for yourself, or is just having fresh people enough?
1: To keep it fresh for myself every time, first of all, I discuss different articles every time. So I will find a fresh batch of articles that I have not read before, new. And so that's new to me. That's new to them. Now, on Star Island, I used to be a taskmaster, but I've changed my approach to Star Island. We're on a beautiful island. I really shouldn't be having people write from 9 o'clock in the morning to 9 o'clock at night. You know, they need to have some rest and relaxation time, too. So we, we, whereas we used to do about 22 prompts in, a, you know, in that time period, I, I go from more like between 12 and 15. We'll write two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, or three hours, and then the last uh, last summer after COVID, there was a lot going on in the evenings, which there never had been. But anyways, we'll do like 12 to 15 prompts, and every single year I I choose different ones. I've very rarely done repeats in 16 years, so it's fresh to me. Oh, I forgot to say that. I always read my work. I write with them, I read with them, and then I can critique my own work in a way I don't critique theirs. If I were going to rewrite, you know, if I were going to edit this up, I would, blah, blah. And then the other thing is, I don't ask people to take a risk if I'm not willing to take it. And also, I try to figure out my prompts early on and get them ready so that I forget them. And then when I get to the workshop, there's like, oh, yeah. So accused <laughs> me of saying, yeah, but you could think about this beforehand. In all of the things that you do, what's your biggest frustration? Technology. But I said to my daughter, Karen, and Chris at the beginning of the year, I went over to the house, I said, I have come to a really big, exciting announcement of something I'm going to do this year. Their eyes perk up. What is it? I'm going to ask you for help more. (laughs) (laughs) And their face falls. (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, with my daughter's help, there is a lot going on now that wouldn't have been going on before behind the scenes. And now my husband, he's been over to Karen's house, my daughter two or three times to learn the behind the scenes thing so that he can take care of that. How do you decide what you're going to charge? That's the second thing that's a problem. (laughs) Because it needs to be worth it to me, but there's a lot of things on the internet. So I'll tell you, In this first full day workshop that I just had a couple of weeks ago, I priced it out at $99. I thought that was a good amount. Originally, I had it higher than that, and I said, no, I'm going to go with $99 upon Karen's advice, actually. And then afterwards, I asked them, the participants, I asked, what would you have been willing to pay for this? And they said, $49. And Karen also asked me a really important question. She says, Mom, would you rather have less people and more money or more people who are paying less, but it might add up to more? And I thought that was a very profound question. Rather have more people and charge them a little bit less because it could add up to be more. Right. And it also could reach more people with dispelling the myth of I'm not a good writer. You know, here's the thing. I told you I interviewed those four New England writers. Well, there are things that they told me back in the 90s. One of them, Donald Hall, told me he he edited his poems about 100 times. Now, that's an incredible thing. Sometimes, you know, the way writing is taught in schools is pathetic because it's not even with the the real world, what a professional writer, how they operate. You know, a teacher gives an assignment, kid goes home, writes an essay, turns it in. I'm assuming that it's still the way it used to be. And the teacher marks it all up in red, gives them a C minus and hands it back. Well, where was the teaching in that? Where was the teaching? That is not good. It needs to be positive. It needs to be upbeat. You know, kids have a pencil in their hand and they freak out. They're a nervous wreck. Do you think J.K. Rowling wrote those stories the first draft? I wonder how much, you know, Harry Potter, how many times did those things get edited? So what I deal with is people with newborn writing. That's what I deal with. Because I want to give them something to work on when they leave the session.
0: That makes sense. It's a
1: good space to be with the babies. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And some of them, a lot of them, actually most of them are not babies. But they didn't know it before they walked in.
0: Right. Is there... Anything that you wish that people understood better about your work or what you do?
1: That's a good question.
0: Like something that, yeah, something that wouldn't be obvious to a casual
1: passerby or whatever. Yeah, there's a couple of things. Is that I was afraid in the beginning and I went ahead anyway. When I rented an entire bed and breakfast, when I got, when I wrote Fed Up, when I, you know, now I'm interviewing Gabby and Romy when I do those kinds of things, I panic, you know, I do the, okay, we're going to do this. And then I panic. And I, I, I get beyond that. I I go ahead anyways and, and do it. So it's like the duck that looks so calm up above the water, but his feet are paddling so much below the surface. And I think that is it. And, and it's, yeah. I guess that's about it.
0: <laughs> my very last question for you is where can they find your work?
1: If you're looking for my books, there's five of them that are on Amazon. And then my website is rightlines.net. It's W-R-I-T-E-L-I-N-E-S dot And I can find out about workshops and my email address is on there. And any questions? So I will have
0: those links in the show notes. So if you go to ordinarychaospodcast.com, those links will be there to just click. And that's all. Thank you so much. This was so interesting.
1: <laughs> I got a little bit carried away there.
0: Oh, I loved it. I loved it.
1: <laughs> I thought it was going to be question and answer. But then you asked me a question and you spent 30 minutes on it or something.
0: <laughs> well, and I have note cards here with all the questions that I want to ask. And as I asked them, I flipped them over so I know that they're done. And as you were talking, I was flipping them over. I was like, okay, she answered that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, she answered that. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Ordinary Chaos is written, produced, edited, and all the things by me, he. The music was created by Keith Kelly. You can find show notes and learn more about the podcast, about Keith, or about me at ordinarychaospodcast.com. As always, Ordinary Chaos is an ad-free podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to OrdinaryChaosPodcast.com, scroll down, and click support the podcast.
1: Uh, By the way, did you have any more than one question to ask me? (laughs) You keep going. This is fantastic. Think of something to ask me, because I think I might be. (laughs)